When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Everybody, welcome to New Book Network's Disability Studies channel. I'm Bing Wan Tian, the host of this podcast. I'm delighted to invite Dr. Ravity to join us and talk about her new book, From Inclusion to Justice, Disability, Ministry, and Congregational Leadership. So, Dr. Ravity, could you briefly introduce yourself and your research to us, please? And why are you interested in disability studies, especially what brought you to this field? Sure. Thanks so much for having me. Um, I'm Erin Rafferty. I currently uh, teach at Princeton University. I teach a course actually on disability justice in the writing program there. And then I also do research with Princeton Seminary with congregations. And I'll start with this question about why I'm interested in disability studies, because it's a bit longer of an answer than this particular research project. But um, I did my field work when I was a PhD student in China, and I was studying foster families. And when I went to China, I didn't realize that the majority of foster families that are raising children, especially for international adoption in China today, are raising disabled children. So that was a whole ethnographic surprise, if you will, for me in my field work that the children that I ended up spending a lot of time with were children with cerebral palsy, with autism, with Down syndrome. And so it was kind of this education in the field. And when I came back and I was writing up my dissertation, then I had to kind of, you know, you you try to do your generals exams before you do your field work and study everything you need to study. But I had to do all of this research into not only disability and disability studies, but disability in China. So I learned a lot through that experience. And that was the subject of my first book, which is called Families We Need, which is all about those foster families in, in China that play that important role in raising um, disabled children and you know, many of those disabled children are adopted abroad as well. So there was kind of this international component to it. Um, I, After I came back from uh, China and doing my field work and started to um, teach, I had uh, a child of my own and my daughter happened to be born with a progressive genetic disease of the brain, which was a surprise to me and my husband. But uh, being in China um, and spending all this time with these families is actually what inspired us to become parents. And the children that I had in mind when I became a parent were the children I knew with disabilities. And so it was really, I was really prepared in a lot of ways, I feel like, to become a mother to a child with multiple disabilities. And 
although my daughter was born with a pretty serious disease, uh, she's nine years old today and she is really thriving. She uses um, alternative communication methods. She uses a wheelchair to get around. She has a lot of medical needs, but we live close to a wonderful children's hospital. And so she has also been a great teacher for me when it comes to learning about living life with a disability. And then I am ordained as a Presbyterian pastor. My master's is in divinity. So after my daughter was born, it was pretty clear to me that it was going to be very difficult to continue to do research in China and go back and forth with a child with medical complexity. So I started to, because I was a pastor, notice all of these needs within churches, um, not just to support, better support disabled people, but to better understand disabled people and to maybe change some of the ways we do ministry. And so my perspective in this research in this book, you know, comes from a couple places. Of course, I'm a researcher, I'm a cultural anthropologist, and I do human subjects research, but I'm also a parent of a disabled child, and I'm a pastor. So it's kind of an intersectional research project in that way, because I play multiple roles. Um, as we worked with, we studied 11 different congregations for this book and studied their ministries with people with disabilities. Uh, thank you for your sharing experience. Um, um, so could you uh, explain to us how ableism is embedded in social uh, system and in the church so that people with the disabilities have to work all their lives to fit in? Can you give us some examples, please? Yeah, that's one unique perspective in my book uh, is that the field of disability theology um, which, you know, some of the different kind of perspectives I'm taking in my book, I am a practical theologian that uses like ethnographic research methods to study the church. But I, because I come out of anthropology, I also have a lot of um, dialogue with disability studies. And one of the things I don't think we talk enough about in theology of disability is ableism. Like we don't even say the word ableism in theology of disability a lot. And we definitely aren't saying it in our Christian churches. So I think that's what I was trying to do in this book is kind of really introduce churches to even the idea, the concept of ableism. And as you just said, to explain that ableism isn't just one-off discrimination against disabled people or individualized discrim discrimination or prejudice, but that the systems that we have are really not set up for disabled people. And you can see that in the cases of like healthcare and education, how even the term special education, right? The idea is like, oh, when education is for quote, normal people, it's education, but for when it's, when it's for disabled people, it's special education. Um, and so the idea, the implication there is that disabled people are somehow abnormal, right? Or there's something wrong with them. But that isn't the viewpoint that I think we want to take if we're Christians or we want to take from scripture. And out of disability studies, you know, there's been so much work with the social model to really um, combat the medical model of disability. And so a lot of what I'm doing in the book is kind of just introducing people to the concept of the social model of disability, which, as we know, in disability studies has been heavily critiqued and isn't perfect itself, but really helps, um, I think, people in churches see that disability is not an individual problem for a person, but it's a social problem. And the lack of acceptance and the lack of supports and the lack of even um, for our churches 
accessibility because churches um, lobbied to actually be um, excused from having to implement the Americans with Disabilities Act that was passed in 1990. A lot of churches are not even physically acceptable, uh, um, excuse me, accessible. But a lot of what I'm talking about the book in the book is more kind of social accessibility. You know, how does someone feel when they walk into the space and what does it look like for them to actually try to access the space? And that kind of gets into what I talk a lot about in the book, which is I'm critiquing the concept of inclusion. So I'm saying not just, not only is it the case that um, churches are set up, like so many other institutions are set up with able-bodied people in mind, um, but it's also the case that then when we go to quote unquote include disabled people, it often ends up reinforcing that ableism. And so it just kind of keeps the same people in power and doesn't make space for the very people that it seeks to serve um, in the way that it maybe only gives those people services and supports, but doesn't actually make space for them, for instance, in being ministers or being leaders in church spaces. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's it's very insightful. Thanks for your response. And uh, now I want to invite you to discuss what you think is the problem of inclusion in the contemporary Christian church and why justice in church matters? So the reason that I chose to focus on inclusion as one of the problems that my book talks about is because we did research with a real diversity of Christian congregations in the Northeast. And all of these congregations were doing ministry with disabled people And they were doing lots of different things, but they were all struggling. (laughs) And we were kind of wondering why it was so difficult for them. And as we talked more with the congregations and with the clergy and with their members, especially with disabled people, we realized that these congregations were kind of copying the way that we do inclusion in other institutions, like in schools, for instance. And they were sort of working on an accommodations-based model where disabled people would come into the congregation and they would ask for what they need and the congregation would try to give it. And this put the congregation in a rough spot if they felt like they couldn't do what schools, you know, and maybe hospitals or, you know, other institutions do because they didn't have the resources because some of them typically don't. So they were kind of put in a position where they were just saying like, yes or no to people's access needs. And this really wasn't working um, well for either parties because it created kind of a gatekeeping system where it meant that congregations or clergy, you know, whoever was in power kind of stayed in power and they either said yes or no to access requests. And disabled people remained recipients of care and goods and services. And I talk about in my book how this becomes a transactional model of ministry. And it leaves people feeling really unsatisfied because that's not really what we're called to do in churches. We're not just called to give people goods and services. Everyone in, you know, Christian congregations is, and Jesus calls everyone (laughs) into ministry and leadership. Like um, Jesus disciples everyone, everyone has a role. And the problem in this case is that inclusion kind of keeps the people in power in power. And it sort of assumes that the way churches are, which is unfortunately, able-bodied, like you don't see a lot of churches that are led by disabled people, that that's just kind of the way it is. And I think when Jesus is talking about justice, 
he is talking about a radical inversion of the way power looks like, not just in our societies, our society, excuse me, but even in our churches. So, you know, when Jesus says things like the last shall be first and the first shall be last, like what if he really means it? <laughs> and then what does that look like um, for us in our churches if we're going to seek to follow Jesus toward justice? And so when we noticed that inclusion was kind of just like perpetuating the status quo, we realized that it was maybe also sustaining ableism. So even though people were really well-meaning and they wanted to create change for disabled people, I don't think that able-bodied people are going to be able to do that. I think that Jesus wants disabled people to be ministers and leaders. And I think that disabled people really need to be at the heart of disability ministry. And that sounds so simple, but so often you see ministries that are like for disabled people, but are not being led, right? Or run by disabled people or disabled people. Yeah. Don't get to be involved beyond just kind of receiving things. So that was kind of the concern that emerged around inclusion. And I always say to people like, if I talk about inclusion and this sounds nothing like what inclusion looks like at your church, like at your church, inclusion is really working to change the balance of power and disabled people are in leadership and ministry, then awesome. Like keep going with that, obviously. But if your church is struggling this, struggling with this, it's like maybe you need a new paradigm and maybe we need to you know, start to think a little bit more about something that looks a little more like the kingdom of God, like, like this radical justice that Jesus has in mind rather than just settling for inclusion. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And under the model of transaction, um, I think both the pastors and both the congregation, they are kind of enslaved by this mode. And the disability groups, they cannot release their potentials and be the center of the ministry, right? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's the problem is it kind of sustains this idea that like, you know, disabled people... Um, all they have are needs, right? They don't have gifts <laughs> to bring to the church. Um, and that's simply not true. And in fact, one of the things that I try to do in the book is invite people to really learn more about the disabled people's movement in the United States, really learn more about the disability justice movement and how that was kind of critiquing and building on the disabled people's movement in the United States. And look around because there are so many disabled people who are leaders in our society. And when we look at our churches and then we don't see people in leadership we need to take that seriously as a sin. Like I actually talk about the sin of ableism because so why is it that our churches are not, you know, nurturing and amplifying the gifts for ministry and leadership of disabled people? So it is both a sin, right? But then it's an opportunity. And so I'm not saying our churches need to be more like the world. In fact, I think sometimes that's the awesome thing is they can be less like the world, right? We can kind of I think, move towards this justice, yeah, together in more exciting, radical ways. But we have been sort of playing small. And we have also been, I think, just not listening, right, to our disabled siblings in Christ. So yeah, I absolutely agree that. And I think the book really like kind of brings that out in some of the ethnographic examples that transactional ministry is not what Jesus was calling us to. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's really insightful. I like your point. And now I would like you to uh, invite you to talk about the next question. What is the typical approach to inclusion for families with disabilities in church? 
What do you think are the limits of the church's approach to inclusion, particularly in terms of families' isolation and having their voice heard? Yeah, thank you for that question because that hopefully helps me illustrate a bit more what this looks like in practice. Because, like I said, I think churches are so well meaning in this approach to inclusion. And I think that they're really stuck too, and that they're trying something and it's not working and they can't figure out why. So an example of that in the book that I talk about is when um, I learned alongside a Catholic parish um, named St. John Chrysostom about how they kind of did these listening groups and they like sat down with families in their church. And um, these are families with disabled members and they asked them like, what's working for you? What's not working for you? And they really tried to listen in and understand where they were coming from. One of the things that they heard over and over is that families and disabled people felt really isolated. They felt really alone. And one of the things that I talk about is when we're working with a model of inclusion, a lot of times what happens with that is the church thinks, okay, so like we're in charge, we're in power, we can do something about this isolation. How do we solve it? How do we fix it? Okay, we're going to get this family services, you know, we're going to connect them, right, with all of these community services, or, you know, we're going to better kind of integrate them into the school, like that's what they're saying, right, when they feel that they're isolated. But when I was sitting alongside these family members and seeing them talk about the isolation, I could see like the tears in their eyes, and I could hear how tired they were. And as a pastor, what kind of occurred to me is like, they were saying, I'm really hurt <laughs> and I need someone to bear witness, yeah, to my pain. <laughs> um, and yes, like ultimately, you know, getting connected with services could be part of, you know, experiencing healing and that pain, but actually just having another person, you know, witness that pain. And then I talk about, and this kind of gets to, I know you have a question about lament, but I talk about how important it is in the Christian tradition for us to not only bear witness to that pain, but for us to kind of come alongside people in their pain. So the reason someone feels isolated is because they are sad and hurt and they're alone. (laughs) And so simply by saying, you know, I'm so sorry that you're in pain. And and this is what happened at those listening sessions is people just let people talk. And then they would say, I didn't know that. I'm I'm so glad that I now know. Thank you for sharing. I'm so sorry that you're in pain you know, it created space for people to tell their stories as they are and to be, you know, attended to as human beings with dignity, which I feel like is like the heart of Jesus's ministry. And I think that sometimes, you know, we're playing too small as the church. We're thinking like, we'll just get people services. It'll be fine. But for that power dynamic to change, it has to start with listening, right? It has to start with understanding where someone is really coming from, not just like, thinking about their pain, but even kind of experiencing it with them and showing them like, I'm willing to sit here with you in the suck, in the hurt and all those things. And I know that that's the first step toward us working together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really insightful. I think it's really important that just to sit down with them and listen to what they're experiencing and uh, to live with them and to be happy with them together. So um, what you just talked about, remind me about uh, um, perspective or lens called WPR. That is mean. That means what's the problem represented to be. That means a lot of uh, 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 
a lot of、uh, things going on there. They are treated like a problem. So、yes. a lot of people just say, "Oh, it is a problem." So let's get to solve it. But however, it is not about to solve a problem. So the disability group, they are not the problem to be solved. However, they are the the、uh, person they are. Beloved by God, so they are in the center of the、uh, ministry. So they are really the people you need to see there and listen to them.、Yeah. That is such an important point, and I'm so glad that you said that because I think that's one of the on the first couple pages of my book. It's like people are not problems, <laughs> and you're absolutely right that when we're trying to quote solve the problem of disability, it's like what are we even doing because. You know, Jesus is in ministry with disabled people, values disabled people just as they are. There isn't an, a problem to be solved here. The problem to be solved, I argue in the book, is ableism, right? And then it's the approach sometimes, this approach of inclusion, exactly. So that becomes the problem for the church, right, to grapple with. But when you make people feel as though they are the problem, and when we say things a lot of times in churches, and we don't mean them to be callous, but we say things like. I'm so sorry. We just don't have the money for that. What disabled people hear is, "You're not a priority. I don't care about you." <laughs> and so this is where actually jumping forward to either try to solve the problem or saying you can't solve the problem, like you said, it just makes someone feel like they indeed are the problem. It doesn't make them feel listened to, or like you said, it doesn't make them feel like they're even a person. Which is why I think so many disabled people do not come to church because that's the way they've been treated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks for your、uh, answer. Um, what do you think of the essence of lament in the Bible, like the lament of Job, lament of Canaanite woman, the lament of Bartimaeus? How does the essence of lament relate to calling and ministries of disabilities in current churches? Yeah. So I wrote this book. Um, I did the research of this book in fall 2019 and winter 2019, and into the winter of 2020. Unfortunately, I was pretty much done with my research <laughs> by the spring of 2020 when COVID happened. But I was very much writing the book as COVID, the COVID pandemic, was sort of playing out, and I was really struggling because my daughter is immunocompromised, and so I found myself <laughs> myself lamenting. I was so upset that. I couldn't be part of a Christian community because when other people determined for them that it was safe for them to take their masks off, it still wasn't safe for my family, especially for my daughter. And so, as I was wrestling with what I was seeing happening in churches, I could see that disabled people, for you know, decades, have been so clearly lamenting their lack of access and have been crying out and saying, "This doesn't work for me," or as you just said, "You're making me feel like a problem, and I'm not a problem." But that churches were really struggling to hear these laments because they sounded angry, like they weren't, you know, pitiful, sad laments. They were like protests. And as I dug more thoroughly into, as you mentioned, the biblical tradition of lament. I saw how intertwined it is with protest, and how it can be like fiery. It's actually speaking truth to power. Like if you think about it, lamenting injustice is all about calling out what's wrong in the world and saying things are not as they should be. And so, what I realized is when disabled people do that. 
the church is often implicated. Like they feel indicted by that. They're like, oh my gosh, am I part of the problem? Like you're saying this doesn't work for you. Am I the enemy, right? Am I the oppressor? (laughs) And so I think that that's actually a real invitation for churches to grapple with that. Like, you know, am I playing a part in this injustice? But ultimately what I think is so powerful about lament is that the person who is lamenting and the person who's hearing, if we're doing it really faithfully, we don't stay there. Like, I think it's, I actually think it's a miracle (laughs) because I think that if you're really sad or you're really angry and you're screaming and crying out to God, you would think that that might make it worse, right? You might think that like, all that's going to do is just like a pity party, poor me. Um, And I'd like to actually make clear that when I'm talking about lament from disabled people, I'm talking about lamenting ableism and lack of access. I'm not talking about lamenting one's own disability. I think So many people have the wrong idea that disabled people are not happy with their lives, but many disabled people are very satisfied with their lives as is. And some people don't want to live with pain or they're struggling with certain aspects of their disability. But I'm talking more about when people come to the church with access concerns and the church is kind of like gets offended, right? Because they feel implicated. So anyway, but what's amazing about this is if we really do this faithfully, what it does is it kind of decreases that power imbalance between one person being in kind of like a gatekeeping position or a position of power and another person being in the position of kind of constantly having to ask for things. Like I think of that uh, parable of the unjust judge. Um, And because that's not a very good paradigm for justice. That's what Jesus is trying to get us to see. But what happens is in like hearing these laments, churches' hearts can be changed. And what happens is like people can kind of come alongside each other and come before God and lament together. And when that happens, like disabled people can see the church. So the church is basically saying like, we have made mistakes. We don't have it right. I'm sorry you don't feel included. This is not okay. And then together they're crying out to God. And then together we can work towards, right, some of these solutions that we want and disabled people's you know, hearts and concerns are honored. So that I just found so much beauty and power in the practice of lament. And, you know, it's something that like we don't do a lot in our churches. Like we kind of like to sing like praise songs, but we don't really like think about protest as being faithful. We don't really think about the Psalms of lament, Job as being you know, role models. But I saw this incredibly like brave thing that disabled people are doing and this opportunity for the church to listen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think in the lament, there's power and there are very pure power to unite all the parties together. Yes, and to make things move forward. Thank you. Thank you. So Dr. Ravity, what are the differences between uh, separate worship and ministry spaces versus segregated spaces in churches? Do you think separate ministry spaces are necessary? How can the separate spaces not be segregated? Yeah, so some of the ministries that I feature in my book um, that I learned about uh, are ministries that are run by disabled people or disabled people and their families. And so I'll give you a couple examples of those. Um, One of those, for instance, in New Jersey, the um, ELCA, the Lutheran churches in New Jersey, have developed a really cool ministry called Joyful Noise. And it's a um, worship service uh, on Sunday afternoons, typically like once a month, that is geared towards 
disabled children and their families. And it allows disabled children to move about the sanctuary more freely, to cry out and be louder, to um, have a sensory space that they can go if they need to be quiet, uh, to participate more and to lead more in the, ser- the service than like sometimes they typically get to. And I talk about how some people really bristle at the idea of a separate service like that because they think it is segregated. But I draw on a lot of literature from um, politics um, and community organizing and also from, um, you know, different racial affinity groups um, to talk about the fact that there's a difference between um, segregated spaces and what I would call these spaces, which I would call these spaces, what they call them in literature is free spaces, because what's happening in these spaces is disabled people are able to not just participate, but lead. Um, And the problem is in some of the traditional spaces, they're not able to lead. And so I talk about the way in which I actually think this is an opportunity for churches to nurture these free spaces and these disabled-led groups, because I think that there is a lot of justice-making that can come out of these spaces where disabled people can relate to one another, they can be more comfortable and more free, and then they can also actually do more in leadership. And one of the examples I give in the book is that in this Joyful Noise service, children were serving communion. Disabled children were helping to serve communion. And their siblings, who weren't necessarily disabled, were there. And they were like, well, why aren't we all doing this in the typical service? Like, maybe on Sunday mornings, I could help, you know, serve communion in the regular service. And so that's an example of how these disabled-led spaces can be more progressive than traditional spaces. And then can kind of the like, you know, progressive, like I think work of the spirit (laughs) in those um, disabled-led spaces can filter over into traditional spaces. So in this way, I feel like it's a real misnomer to see them as like separate or segregated. Um, And I think there's actually a lot of um, incredible work that the spirit can do if churches can nurture these ministers and leaders, these disabled ministers and leaders who feel called to develop something like this. So for instance, the Joyful Noise Service, it actually like attracts families from all over New Jersey who are struggling, right, in their more traditional spaces. And I think it's also kind of like a little bit of like an eschatological challenge. Like we have this hope when we get to heaven that like, you know, these divisions between us will be healed. But we know that like, we're not there yet. <laughs> and so I actually think there's a lot of faithfulness in kind of saying, for instance, for a church saying, I'm going to let this disability activist group meet in our basement for free, right? Because we believe in what they're doing and we think they have a lot to teach us, right? So it's not – so the difference between these, I mean, if a if a group of able-bodied people in a church is like, we want to set up a disability ministry for disabled people, like – I don't think I think that is a segregated ministry. And I don't think that's probably going to bear fruit because that isn't a space right where power is being shifted and where disabled people can minister and lead. But I think when disabled people come to um, church leadership and say, we have a vision, (laughs) right, for this thing we want to do in the community or we feel called right to do this or that. Um, and it doesn't yet work in the traditional space. I think what we have to do is hope and trust that the spirit is working to kind of continue to to heal us together and to trust that disabled people know what they need, right? In terms of saying this space really serves us for now. 
Yeah, thanks. Thanks for sharing. So it's important to have a free space to unite the disability uh, people together and unite them and uh, up lead leadership and uh, make their voice heard and play their role. Thanks. Um, uh, so, Dr. Rafti, in your opinion, what is the problem with the current Christian leadership model through the theological lens? What meaningful insights can be brought out through the ministry of disabled groups? Yeah, I feel like my book only kind of scratches the surface of this, but I felt it was really important to put this critique in the book because Right now in theological education, the term leadership is so popular. So many seminaries are developing curriculum and programs to train up Christian leaders because they realize what an impact uh, Christian leaders can make on society. But I worry that in those conversations, as I studied them, that disabled voices really aren't present. And in fact, like if you look at theological institutions, there really aren't a lot of disabled uh, students or faculty or community members. Um, you could argue that theological institutions are pretty exclusive, you know, unfortunately, that they're really not very accommodating when it comes to disabled people in the first place. So one of the things that I'm thinking about with this is that I worry that that conversation around Christian leadership is too insular, <laughs> that the people who need to be at the table, disabled people, are nowhere even near the conversation. And so, you know, the conversation is kind of just reinventing itself with the same people and the same paradigms. And as I looked through the literature, I noticed that, you know, a lot of Christian leadership is like focused on competency and efficiency and creating a non-anxious presence and being self-differentiated and much in the way feminist scholars and other um, black scholars and minority scholars have critiqued some of these paradigms as, you know, pretty capitalist and kind of out of more white spaces. I had the same concern that they sort of reflect concerns of like a, you know, we would say like a normate, a normal bodied person, and they sort of assume all these things um, about leadership. And so I was really excited by the time that I got to spend with disabled leaders in the church and the way they were kind of really disrupting some of these norms um, in being more collaborative, for instance, in their leadership styles and being more networked in their leadership styles um, in misfitting, to use Rosemary Garland Thompson's term, um, disrupting kind of the paradigms of leadership. But I think in a lot of really good and productive ways and kind of exposing that if what we're doing in building up this like industry of Christian leadership is creating these like boxes and these pedestals, right, that people have to fit into, um, we're definitely not going to see more disabled leaders in churches. And that's my kind of bottom line and goal is like, I want to be in churches that are full of disabled ministers and leaders who feel really you know, nurtured and amplified, right, by the people around them. And we just don't see that. And so I was just really asking that this question in, in, in the book is kind of like, is the Christian leadership, you know, industry kind of thinking of and only serving a particular kind of leader and trying to introduce other kinds of leaders and push a little bit against some of the normativity in these spaces? Yeah, thank you very much. I think it's... Um, as uh, hearing what you you just talk about, I think it um just running the ministry of disability is not just to run a business or uh, like the very normal mode. 
It's about using the creativity and uh, the power of Holy Spirit to let more uh, disability groups to get involved in. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. So um, for my last question, it is in your research process for this book, Faced with IRB, that is Institutional Review Board Conventions, why do you keep some research subjects' real names rather than follow the regular routine for anonymity? Yeah, this is, I think, a good story. <laughs> so we went into the research and I went into the research um, doing it the way I typically do in telling research subjects that they would have full anonymity. Um, and that's a really important move Uh to make people comfortable and then, you know, also to make sure that people, yeah, don't feel, uh, you know, we, you just want to be honest, right. About the way that you're using the research. And that's kind of the typical way that we do things. Um, and you know, there is a history of unfortunately, um, research exploiting disabled people, right. So these were concerns that we had when we were doing the research is that we really wanted to be, um, mindful of the ethics. However, as we got further into the research, um, people with disabilities were saying to us, you know, you can use my name, please use my name. And one of the things that I was realizing is that if this book is to like really amplify the ministry and leadership of disabled people, it would really be not faithful to not use their names because then people can't see them and they can't even like follow up with them. We have a lot of churches that are doing really good work and I wanted them to be seen and recognized. And it reminded me a lot of the one of the scriptures that's really at the heart of the book, which is um, when Jesus um, calls uh, Bartimaeus uh, to him and calls Bartimaeus by name. And that is such an important story because unfortunately, so many disabled people are not named in the Bible, but Bartimaeus is. And the thing that I talk about a lot in the book is that we sort of often stop with this miracle of healing because Bartimaeus regains his sight. But the other thing that happens in this story is that Bartimaeus, it says, follows Jesus on the way, which means like he goes with Jesus and becomes a minister and becomes, you know, part of his ministry. And I think it was a real shift for me and my research team to say, hey, we actually might be silencing people with disabilities in their ministry if we don't use their names. And so we went back to everybody in the project and we did like a IRB addendum and said, you know, do you want us to use your names? Yes or no. And some people didn't want us to use their names, but many people did. And so I love that in the book, when I talk about disabled ministers and leaders, I can actually call them by name. I can say I'm really grateful for the Clark family. I'm really grateful for Lisa, who was a blind wrecker at St. John's, who taught us so much. I'm really grateful for Bailey, who is a um, seminarian that lives with mental illness, and everything that they shared. And I think that this is one of the things that, again, like thinking about how inclusion and ableism work, like if we included disabled people in the study, but then we didn't use their names. <laughs> it's like, to what extent are they really being included? To what extent is their ministry and leadership yeah, really being amplified? And so I felt like really um, coming face to face with my own ableism as a researcher and saying like, I just do things the way I do them because I've taught that they're right. But disabled people are teaching me that when it comes to working with marginalized populations, 
I may need to learn something from them in order to do the research more ethically. And of course, like at the heart of this book is all about justice, right? So it's like, in order for us to actually experience justice (laughs) in the space of the church, I think that able-bodied people need to nurture and amplify the ministry and leadership of disabled people. And this was an example of how we could do that by using their names. Yeah, it was really beautiful sharing. Yes, because Jesus called them by their names. So a lot of people, they love to be called by their name and share their real name. Yeah, thank you very much for this wonderful interview and your insights. I think many people will benefit a lot from this interview. Thank you, Dr. Rafferty. So uh, today we'll finish. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. Bye bye.